Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and today I'm excited to have A.D. Pena, who's the founder of Coxie, a company which helps growth-focused e-commerce brands forecast how many inventory units they have. Uh, he was earlier the founder of Convergio, where he worked with CM Commerce after Campton Monitor had acquired Convergio. Prior to Convergio, um, AD was co-founder of Woo Teams and Woo Commerce, where he made his early entrepreneurial mistakes while learning about building a software for e-commerce tools. Uh, AD is the author of the new book, Life Probability, The New Measure of Entrepreneurial Success. Welcome to the show, AD. Thanks for having me, Rohit. Awesome. So you know, uh, you you you've been uh, part of a couple of startups. Uh, being you've been part of WooCommerce, which is which is which is a very famous company. Now, how did you get your interest in startups and 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 your background as as a, as a kid in South Africa? Yeah, um, I think the the first exposure I had to entrepreneurship in general was was probably just watching what my dad did. Right uh, from when I was a toddler, at least, and I can remember my dad always had his own businesses and i think just seeing that and seeing that there was an alternative path here which wasn't necessary to be employed you know climb the corporate ladder all those kind of clichés um that i think we use to define that kind of professional you know professional career path like seeing that there was an alternative um i think was was that first exposure right and at least planted the seed that this was a possibility uh and thereafter i think the thing that happened was when i was in my early teens i and i can't remember for the life of me and how this happened but i stumbled um upon either richard branson's autobiography or biography and I ultimately read both you know kind of both of them at that stage and this is probably again like early teens like going back like this is late 90s right i'm i'm 36 today and reading about kind of richard branson's story and especially that's kind of rebellious spirit that he had. I was also very much into punk rock music at that stage so the the kind of rebellious parts uh like really resonated but like seeing um I think seeing just so much of his character of who he was as a person like manifesting in the way he thought and kind of you know built the business that was really attractive. Like I think like those were the kind of the earliest um like true seeds where I felt like Ooh, this is like I could see myself doing something similar in the future. Interesting, and uh, you know, you, you talked about you always being able to Cape Town. Uh, was it a great entrepreneurial scene in in Cape Town, or uh, has has it really transformed in the last couple of years? Uh, so, I um, I want to choose politically correct words here, right? I think um, I think for two reasons, South Africans um, as a nation at least has has great entrepreneurial spirit right i think the first one being we're a developing country um developing economy which generally means um that there are many people for whom opportunities economic opportunities doesn't come easily and they have to they're essentially kind of forced down this alternative path of you know literally kind of you know, figuring out their own path right which tends or leans towards that kind of entrepreneurial spirit. I think like that's the one part thereof. And I the other thing that I wonder about and like don't get me wrong and it's why I want to be very politically correct here is you know during apartheid um in South Africa when we had economic sanctions many of the things that we needed in this country needed to happen in our country 
and we couldn't rely on other people. And I think, um, and by, by no means, I think, you know, I, I wholly against apartheid and apartheid created nothing of any value. Um, but I wonder whether that at least illuminated this, that sense of belief in South Africans that if we needed to be self-reliant, we can be self-reliant, we can figure something out. And I think it's it's that spirit, you know, when I when I speak with, you know, kids, youngsters, um, you know, young adults today, and I see that energy that I have, like there, there's something about that, that resilience, that kind of belief that, hey, we can do this, that truly inspires me. And I said, I, I don't necessarily know how that came about. Um, I said the economic sanctions back in the day might have contributed to that. But that's that's how I would think about entrepreneurship in, in the sense of um, the South African context. Yeah, no, no, I think that's a very interesting point because, you know, uh, I've always lived in uh, India and uh, the, the energy and everything has, has really changed after the you know economic sanctions were lifted in, in mid-90s. So, uh, so yeah, I think uh, a lot of resilience, a lot of all, all these things do come up uh, when, uh, especially for developing countries. And, uh, you know, you, you started off with, with WooCommerce and you're building Woo teams. How, how did, how did that come about? And uh, what, what were you, what, what was the framework when you were trying to, you know, build uh, WooCommerce? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the precursor there, wrote is that, um, you know, the, the almost predecessor to WooCommerce um, was WooThemes itself. So we literally started off, um, I built a WordPress theme um, way back in November 2007. Um, I was still at university at the time. Um, and I built this product. And that's the product that led to me meeting Magnus and Mark, who eventually became my co-founders in WooThemes when we formalized that in, I think it was July 2008. Um, and at that stage, it's, uh, I think it was coincidence, right? I, mean, I got into WordPress because I wanted a blog, because uh, all the cool kids had a blog, literally. And my, um, if I remember correctly, my first blog ever was also called The Cool Crowd, right? I mean, that says a lot yes. about this notion of, <laughs> like, I, I wanted to get into blogs due to the cool kids being in blogs. And I, I, I was always tinkering with computer stuff. I was never a programmer. I did a bit of computer science or programming in high school, but it was DOS-based programming, which we still had an old curriculum. But I was always tinkering, at least on the web, and a little bit kind of a, of a self-taught programming. And when I stumbled onto WordPress, it, it felt natural to tinker there as well. And I kind of taught myself some WordPress basics, some PHP basics to be able to kind of build something there. So and at that stage, the progression really was did it for myself, did it for other people, got paid a little bit for it. Um, and then I built this first theme. And really, if you, if you ask me about that kind of framework at that stage, it really is just, can I make something that other people are willing to pay for, right? Can I make some additional money? I was still, as I said, I was still a student at the time. Um, I was fortunate enough to, my parents covered my, my tuition fees at least, which meant that the money I made was, um, was essentially my own savings or spending money. Um, so at that stage, it wasn't about building a business necessarily. It was literally just like starting to make money. With WooCommerce, which came later in WooThemes' journey, I think it became a different proposition or a different question, right? At that stage, we already had a flourishing business and we wanted to keep on growing that. And you kind of adding some kind of product line in the realm of e-commerce on top of what we were doing 
seemed to kind of make sense and seemed to be the th- like at least one of the ideas that we had at the time that would continue the the growth of the business. So it's very much kind of a, like um, you know different mindset, different frameworks, or different goals at least in those decisions. Like where I started with what became with themes versus where we ultimately kind of the decisions we made and why we made them when we started working on WooCommerce. Interesting. And, uh, you know, was it a conscious decision not to raise funding for uh, for WooCommerce? No. So I think, you know, being in South Africa at that stage, um, I think firstly the tech scene was relatively um, young and I would say immature. Um, and not immature in a bad sense of the word. It's just it, it, there wasn't much of it, firstly, uh, which I think immature and less sophisticated, which also means that there there wasn't any, not any, there weren't many venture capitalists around. So this idea of raising money for a business, uh, raising venture capital for a business at least, uh, was not part of the consideration. And and I say this as, I mean, I did finance and accounting and business strategy in the four years that I spent at university. So I totally understood the the concept of different, you know, different sources of capital and different ways to fund a business. So venture capital was definitely part of my theoretical kind of, you know, mind space. But for whatever reason, you know, for, for Magnus, Mark and I, it, it was never a question that popped up. We never sat around the table and said, hey guys, should we consider raising money for, for Wu at that stage? Um, plus, I think again, like the, the fortunate part there was that we ultimately had the best source of funding, which is revenue and, and our customers, right? We, we, we had built the, the business to be essentially be profitable from day one, and we never went through um, a single month, such word um, in hindsight at least, where we weren't profitable. Got it. And um, you know, you know, a couple of years later, you did quit uh, WooCommerce, uh, and you uh, you did uh, get into into the path of building another another business. Uh, you know, how did how did uh, yeah, how did you decide to you know quit uh, WooCommerce and uh, how did that decision finally happen? Yeah, so so I ultimately left um, you know, WooCommerce uh, at the end of 2013, and um, the reason I left was I wanted a new challenge, um, and specifically I wanted to challenge myself and see whether I could build you know successful business. Um, I said somehow managed to tell myself that I was a one-hit wonder. I, I published this online before, right? But I had this idea in my head that I was a one-hit wonder and I needed to prove to everyone um, that I can do it again. And what I now know years later is that I mostly just needed to prove that to myself. But that that is why I left. Um, at that stage, you know, Magnus, Mark and I had different ideas and different needs, you know, for and of the business effectively. Um, and the one thing I know about myself even to this day is that, you know, as one example, if I had to compare them, you know, money itself has never been a big kind of motivator for me, but a challenge is like, I, I absolutely love a challenge, not all challenges, but very specific challenges. And um, that is why I left back in the day. I, I said, I, I, I wanted to use everything I've learned, all the experience that I've kind of you know, gained, all of the kind of friends that I've made, the network that I built with Wu. And I wanted to see, like, can I take all of those ingredients and put it into a new business that would be at least similarly significant and would also have some improvements? Um, and not necessarily improvements in 
kind of the size of it, but in terms of um, you know how I ran it, the the impact it had, etc. Interesting, and because you you know I I think uh, after uh, part of WooCommerce you did look at uh, receipt which went on to be conversion, and uh, and very interestingly you you did look at fund uh, at at VC uh, funding for for your business, uh, and you know how how do you how do you align yourself uh, whether a business needs that kind of funding with with somebody who wants to keep it a bootstrap. business because you've done a bootstrap business as well as a vc funded business yeah, how does how does a founder a founder uh, get to realize that you know uh, what uh, which which part of the uh, business he wants to be in yeah um so i think that probably the, the the first question that i would probably pose any founder is um you know what kind of business do you want to build and recognizing that there's especially no right or wrong way to build that business um and once you know what that business kind of you know should you what the business would look like like in terms of your own needs or own goals i would say like then figure out what how you need to fund this business right whether you self fund it whether you take a loan whether you raise some form of you know venture capital um because i don't think any of those are right or wrong and i definitely you know as you said like i've done both um and i think both make sense depending on you know on the context um i think um two predominant thoughts that i have these days at least right is the less money you raise and at zero money is the best in the sense you have optionality right you you essentially don't have external investors and i think the th- key thing there to know is external investors when i say external investors i mean investors that aren't actively operating or executing in the business so when you have external investors they their goals are always slightly different to yours right yes there's obviously overlap they don't want something completely different like investors aren't evil that kind of thing but their goals is kind of different probably from yours as a founder like they don't care as much about the problem you're trying to solve or how you solve that problem or the work you do on a daily basis because they're not doing those things right they they mm-hmm. they they attach less value to those things so i think that's the first thing like if you if you truly want to be autonomous and you want to just do your own thing definitely don't involve investors right that's the first consideration the same consideration consideration is probably on the other part of it which is i think i think it's very very hard to bootstrap software businesses these days because um because of a couple of things right i think there are so many really smart people that flock into all spaces so competition right. is more um which means customer acquisition is harder and more expensive that requires money so it's just harder to do that in a bootstrap or self funded budget but i think the other key part that we've seen is that the user expectation is so much higher to have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of beautiful lives increased the social media presence by 10x they managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called social pilot social pilot is a cost effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts use lifestylemastery.com/socialpilot to get a 14 day free trial you know 10 years ago when we were working on you know released i think 10 years to go to the you know this year is when we released WooCommerce's first version. And if you take that first version and what we could quote unquote get away with, right, in terms of user expectations, it was much easier. Like if you release a new software tool today, 
like everyone's used Slack, right? And seen how, what a slick experience it is, right? Um, like, so many different examples. And the, that, that bar is now just so much higher. So I think that is harder to do on a bootstrap budget. The caveat to that is if you are, if you are the builder yourself and you can design as well, I think the kind of the best example I probably have is um, is Derek Reimer that is building Savikel at this stage, um, which is a, a Calendly alternative. And Derek is just a kind of amazing kind of, you know, almost jack of all trades in my word and kind of words in terms of he can build, he's got a great design sense um, and he can do those other non-programming tasks in terms of marketing, sales, copywriting, um, et cetera, as well. Like he probably has things that he's better at and things he's not as you know, good at, but, but he can do most of the things, which means, and I, I've i got a slight bit of insight into his journey. I'm an um, investor in Tiny Seed, the Tiny Seed Fund, which is an investor in Savical, right? So he also took a little bit of kind of bench capital effectively. I think that's possible if you're the builder. If you're not the builder, if, you, if you're like me and you can't write a line of code, I can write a little bit of code, um, but nothing that should be kind of you put into customers' hands. Like, so if you're like me, your only options are to self-fund it. Well, the fact of the matter is I, I can't just grow this out of revenue, right? Like at some stage, whether it's my money or someone else's money, I need to invest X kind of you thousand dollars to get the first version built, right? So, um, like I said, that's a caveat, and I think I think we're going to see more of that. Like that funding is maybe not critical for all new software ventures, but it's going to you know going to become more prevalent and and probably smaller rounds as well, not these kind of massive tech crunch rounds, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I think I I think. Tiny Seed, for example, they're currently writing 120 or 150k checks to a founder for a year, right? So it's literally to to, to help, um, you know, to help a founder that is working nights and weekends, and help them do that full time and quit their day job. Got it. Got it. No, it, it does make sense uh, if you if you raise a smaller check and uh, and an accelerator or a fund like Tiny Seed is backing you with with really experienced operators. I think uh, that sort of help from from investors can can really really help the help the founder. And uh, you know, you uh, did end up selling into Campaign Monitor. Uh, did you did you see the fit to to sell it? And you know, what were the kind of revenues you were making when uh, before you you sold a startup? Yeah, so um, so we sold Campaign Monitor in in, in August 2019, and um, my consideration for for selling was very much a kind of a personal consideration in terms of um, you know at, at least acknowledging that we were operating a very uh, a very competitive market, um, and I knew that kind of to keep on growing from there on would have been hard. Like we have competitors that were doing really well in the market. We had competitors that were raising a bunch of money um, and I didn't necessarily want to do that. So I think that was the one consideration. Another consideration was, um, you know, campaign monitor. I, you know, back in the day when we started with themes, um, you know, there were, weren't that many software, great software examples and, you know, SaaS examples around. I mean, the one back then, this is 2007, 2008. Uh, the one was Basecamp, 37 signals back in the day, yeah. right? So yeah. they had, Basecamp and other products. Like so in terms of aspirations, like that's the one we looked at. And I I remember like campaign monitor, we were early campaign monitor users at 
at Wu Teams back in the day. And I remember when they built, they built this beautiful Sydney office. Uh, and it was just like everything they did, like you just looked at it and it was like, oh, like totally, like this is what we kind of, you know, one day when we grow up, like this is what we're going to do. So I think that's, that affinity that when they came along, like that really appealed to me uh, just as a kind of customer of theirs forever, right? And said, this is going to be a really fun ride, like literally getting a great strategic acquirer to take what we built. Um, and I mean, at that stage, we were we were doing, uh, you know, multiple million dollars in, in annual revenue. Literally take that, take the foundation, take a really great product, a really great, you know, great team and make that even better. Like that was that was really appealing at that stage. Interesting. And, um, you know, uh, uh, we recently launched uh, Life uh, Probability, the, the book that you've been, uh, you've written during, I think, during the COVID time. Uh, what, what is what is the process for, for writing a book? Because you're also running uh, Coxie, uh, start of, I think we, we can talk about it later, but uh, what made you write uh, Life Probability? Yeah, so so I started working on the book just after um, just after kind of a, the transaction concluded to, to sell Convergio to Campaign Monitor, which meant two things basically. And the reason I always kind of mention that timeline is I had slightly more time on my hands, right? I I I wasn't the business owner anymore, right? So I had a very specific role within Campaign Monitor, um, and with regards to you know Convergio, which became um, you know, Campaign Monitor Commerce or CM Commerce, so I had a specific role that was more focused than being the founder that was in charge of everything. I mean, a simple thing, you know, was that I was I was the finance department in, in Convergio prior to exit. And yeah. once we saw, right, we had a fantastic finance department that did those things for me. So I, I had time and, you know, due to the exit, I had some some spare cash as well that I could put, you know, to this because I definitely needed help. So I put, I got a you new know, publishing team together that helped me, do the things that I wasn't that great at. Um, and it ultimately meant about kind of a 15 month process of kind of starting the book. I, I started working with the, the publishing team when I had already written about, I think it was about 35,000 words of the book, like loosely, um, had little bits of structure to it. Um, but that's really why I wanted the publishing team in there is to like take, take those initial words and really help like make it much better. And I think, you know, the book itself um, and the fact that it went to kind of Amazon bestseller status within 48 hours of kind of publishing it, like it speaks to that. Like I got the right team in place to, to, to help me put the ideas and the words into a format that resonates with, with an audience um, and just generally reads well. Got it. And, you know, uh, what what does it take to launch a book? Uh, because uh, you know, uh, what I've seen is writing a book uh, may not have great ROI, but it's it's great for for social uh, social proof and all. But yeah, what does it really take to to launch? Is there, is there a lot of spending on paid ads? Uh, what was your process when you uh, when you look at launching a book? Yeah, so um, I think that kind of the first thing I say there, my publishing team, uh, they they have this mantra which is. You know, you don't market the book. The book is the marketing. So to your point there is I think, you know, very few people truly make money out of books, right? Yeah. Um, your book just adds to your profile, to your resume, to that kind of social proof, right? And I think the, the most successful authors are people that manage to use their book and manage to sell something else that's related to the book, whether it's kind of keynote speaking or 
know, consulting or software, right? In my case, that wasn't it. Um, like I'm, I'm more focused on just getting the ideas out there and getting it as kind of out there as widely as possible. So, um, as I said, that was just a little interesting anecdote. Um, in terms of the launch, I think there's a couple of things that we try to do that, um, without giving away too much of the secret sauce, but there's a couple of things we try to do. So we definitely try to, I try to get booked on a few podcasts that could go live in the week of launch. I think as far as I understand, you know, if, if you're doing an Amazon centric launch, which is what we did, um, launch week itself is important because that literally builds a foundation for you to then kind of continue consistent sales, you know, for the next, you know, the weeks thereafter um, and the year after kind of launch, for example. So like launch week is important. So getting booked on kind of your podcast beforehand, and having some of them go live in launch week, that's the one thing that helped. The other thing that truly helped was I had um, reached out to kind of a bunch of kind of close friends um, or people that I know or are familiar with me that and I gave them my advanced copy of the book a couple of weeks beforehand, month or so beforehand, uh, asked them to read it and to essentially kind of your post. You know, once we go live, if they've read it, you know, post a review. Like having that kind of social proof and other people's words about the book, you know, definitely helped. Um, and I mean, part of that was I got some um, well-known people, for example, to kind of endorse the book to that night. So, so my buddy, Paul Jarvis, who wrote the book, called Company of One. Um, yeah. Like he like he gave me a great testimonial. Heaton Shaw, who many people here would know, um, like he give, gave me a great testimonial. So those kind of the, the reviews, and not just a review in the narrow sense of the word, but really that as a kind of a testimonial that this is not just a book that AD wrote and AD says it's great. Here's actually other people that are also well-known that says this is a good read for X and Y and Z reasons or for ABC type of person, um, that that kind of really helped. So those were the kind of predominant things that we focused on for the launch itself. Um, we've actually not spent um, significant money on, on on paid ads. And something that I learned that I didn't know before, and is it's really hard to spend, at least in terms of kind of books and kind of, uh, you know, Kindle books, it's really hard to spend money on Amazon ads uh, because Amazon is really um really really specific they've got their algorithms and their targeting very specifically dialed in so even if i said this year not that i would ever do this where i have the money to do so but if i said just spend a million dollars on amazon ads in the next week it's not possible right like most like for most authors um apparently like you can't even spend 10 percent of your budget on a daily basis Right, right. No, no, absolutely. I think uh, using the strategy of other uh, authors, especially like Hidden Shop uh, and Paul Jarvis, I think that's, that's a great strategy because it does really add on to the social proof. And, um, <clears throat> you know, how, how do you measure entrepreneurial success? You've been a successful founder. You've been uh, you part of uh, a couple of starters, but we, we sometimes, uh, especially uh, men look at, you know, money as, as entrepreneurial success, but how would you determine entrepreneurial success for people who would want to uh, read a book? And what is the message you want to give to uh, millennials and younger people? <laughs> yeah, so I think like, you know, part of, um, in answering that question at least, it is, is the question I had myself, right? And right. Is, is still that kind of you know, question that I ask myself on a daily basis. 
And the idea of life profitability is my attempt at trying to answer part of that question. And at the core of it, what life profitability means is in like if you want to build a business or even in just in your professional your professional your career, how can you go about those things in a way that's not just kind of you know, financially profitable in the narrow sense of the word, but truly life profitable in the broadest, most holistic, most wholesome sense of the word. And what I mean with that is like how can you build a business or go about your professional career um, in a way that literally builds your life, like build a business that builds your life um, and really supports that life. And what I am trying to advocate for here is that I, I am, I, you know, I consider myself an entrepreneur through and through, and I am, I'm a really ambitious individual. Um, I love making things, all those things. I'm really amb- kind of, I said, ambition challenges. Those things are the things that gets me energized and excited. But even in saying that, there are so many other things in my life that are truly important as well. My 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 family is 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 my highest value. Um, I I do have some hobbies. Like I'm a, a major Manchester United fan. I um, I'm a bit of a kind of a wine geek. I love geeking out about wine. I love drinking wine. Um, I know that my health is important. I know I love running, for example, and I know that I should sleep well. And when I think about, and especially as I kind of go into this next chapter of my life, building Cogsy and figuring out how I can do that in a way that's life profitable, those are the things that I want to make sure that I have enough bandwidth to invest in those as well. I have enough time, attention, energy, presence to truly give those things in my life that what they're due as well. And not just focus on, hey, the business needs to grow, the business needs to survive, this is the only thing that I should be focusing on. So that that really is how I'm thinking about it. And that's where this idea of life profitability comes from, just trying to expand that otherwise very narrow definition that we have with regards to what does success look like in our businesses or in our professional paths. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. That's an interesting insight. But, uh, you know, I wanted to understand, do you, do you also think about your legacy and should people think about their, their legacy uh, if, uh, if yes, I mean, uh, uh, how how should they, they determine their, their legacy? Yeah. Um, so I think about my legacy often. Okay. Um, and, and and not, um, I, uh, I wouldn't say not in a self-indulgent way, but I think there's definitely ego involved in, in legacy. But the way, two things that I would say about legacy is, is firstly, when I think about legacy as a whole, what I try and do is I, try and think about what I want that legacy to be kind of one day when I'm not around anymore. And then I try and kind of, you know, trace back my steps and figure out like what I need to do today, this week, this month to ensure that I get in that vicinity of creating that kind of legacy. Right. So I think that's where the first part where, where legacy is, is helpful, but the, the kind of the why I do that um, is, is mostly I, 
and again, like you know, part of it, I, I don't, I don't want to be disingenuous and say that there's no ego involved here. But like the big reason for why I do this is, um, I want to leave something behind for my boys. Right, my, my boys are young at the stage; they're six and nine. Um, Eddie Junior has just started listening to to some of my podcasts because he has a computer, he's got a Spotify account, so he, he googles. I think he, he maybe Googles himself because uh, we share a name and then he stumbles onto my stuff. But anyway, um, but if I think about that legacy is I, I want to give my boys and I want to leave those breadcrumbs um, that one day if I'm not around, they wanted to figure out or learn more about their dad, essentially, then the breadcrumbs are there and they can actually go through that and they can learn more about who I was, how I thought about things. So that's really how I think about the legacy and ultimately actually what I just hope like if I um and I often tell this to my boys if I like if I had one message for them was one thing that I like wanted to communicate to them in that legacy was just this this notion of like you know all of us are unique individuals and we have our unique magic and I think I think it's a great I think part of the meaning of life I, I and I know at least for me part of my meaning of life is you know, literally waking up every every single day and figuring out how can I manifest the truest version of myself? Like in this moment, you know, on this day, doing whatever it is that I'm doing, um, you know, on the day. And I hope anyone kind of, you know, whether it's 10, 50, you know, 500 years down the line, if they look back at my story or my quote unquote legacy, like that's what they would see that Kira was 80 and he was literally just trying to figure out every single day, how to be an even more true version of himself and how to manifest that truth in this universe. I think, I think that is inspiring that you want to tell the story to, to, to your children and to, to other people also that, you know, uh, uh, that you live life fully. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, in your book, you also talk about how, how to set goals and, uh, you know, a lot of times we, we set a lot of goals uh, in a year, and uh, you talk about setting just three goals in, in 90 days. Uh, can, can you talk more about how do you set goals and how do you go about achieving your goals? Yeah. So I think uh, you know, when, when I set out to write the book, right, is, um, our ideal kind of reader was, was Gina. And Gina is a you know, business owner running a business that's, that's growing, but has some challenges. And Gina is also a single mom. And in that kind of situation that she finds herself in, she has a never-ending to-do list um, where she doesn't feel like she has enough time to address the challenges in the business. She doesn't spend enough time with her kids. She doesn't get to see friends, right? And she's compromising on her sleep. And in that situation, when you already have a never-ending to-do list, which I'm sure kind of many people listening to us chat about this, they've experienced. It doesn't help to start adding things to that to-do list, right? Because your know, things are going to drop off and I, I don't think your success rate is going to be going to be great. So the reason for kind of, you know, just limiting that down to kind of, you know, three big goals in 90 days is, is this idea mostly around if you want to start pursuing greater life profitability in your business, in your life, I think it's about the small steps, right? The small incremental steps you need to take. It's It's mostly not about these massive sweeping kind of radical changes, these pivots. Um, it's just about identifying those small steps. And crucially, I think the small steps are about finding those little spaces of po- pockets of space 
and then using that space to start and redistributing that space into those other parts of your life until you can create some more space. So that is how I kind of think about those. And I think to that extent, the goals that you set, and if you, I think if you're successful at building greater life profitability uh, for yourself, the goals you set will be highly or like truly aligned, not even highly, like truly, truly aligned with who you are as a person and your highest values. Because I think that's where, like, when we do things that are aligned with our those kind of inherent values of like what makes me tick, like what like what truly energizes me, like it will create more energy, creates more space. It's it comes more naturally. It has less friction, less tension to it, right? Um, so that's where I would focus, and hence why like this is not about trying to identify another hundred things you should be doing. Like just find three things that starts moving the needle and then you use that as a way to to build momentum, to create more space, to leverage that space, to reinvest in other things that require energy, attention, time. Got it. I think I think uh, setting three goals in ninety days is uh, and just just focusing on on this. I think I think it reminds me of the story where Warren Buffett talked about. Uh, uh, you know, if you have a lot of goals, just focus on the first five goals. Uh, these are the most important goals. Uh, yeah. I love that. So, so something, by the way, that I learned in, in writing the book, right, was that the the word priority, right, um, the kind of the, the etymological kind of source of it never had a plural. So pro- the word, the concept of priorities never existed. In Latin, priority was only ever singular. It was one thing. It was one important thing. And somewhere in the last kind of, you know, hundreds of years as a kind of Western society, like we bastardized that, right? And we said, hey, like you can actually have multiple things that are important, right? So, but, you know, Chrissy, I mean, and to your point about what Warren Buffett says is, I think when we at least then look at what is important in our life, it's not a hundred things. It is probably like one, two, three, maybe five, maybe 10 things, but all hundred things are probably not as important. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, uh, you know, it is since you've been uh, a part of startups and you've been a, a builder throughout your life, how do you look at product market fit? And uh, do, you, do you advise founders to look at NPS scores at, at such an early stage to how do you determine, uh, you know, product market fit for a, for, a, for a startup? Yeah, I so I'm not very process and kind of um, process driven and there aren't many frameworks that I use. I, I actually don't, I think product market fit is, I would say it's a gut feel thing that you measure in terms of some kind of uh, combination of, you know, you know what your customers are telling you. So you could probably call that, you know, customer satisfaction, customer happiness, and then their willingness to to pay you and keep paying you. So in software, like you would probably include something like retention or churn in, yeah. in, in that equation as well to try and figure out like, do you have part markets? I think like one of my biggest learnings um, with Converger and you know, after Converger is I think in the early years, we grew so fast that we almost skipped past the phase of kind of, you know, reaching product market fit. So we definitely had product market fit, but the reason I say we skipped past it, I was not 100% clear and we as a team weren't 100% clear about why people were paying us. And if, you, if you're into the jobs to be done framework, like what job were they you know, hiring us for? So I think at least having that clarity and checking that often, I think that's important. I also think product market fit changes over time because I think, I think we had as Receiptful, for example, before we rebranded, we had great product market fit. 
and then we expanded the product, rebranded kind of the you know the the company and the you know the, the name of the you know, product, and then we went to that new stage where we should have found new product market fit. So I think it is this thing that you need to seek out often, and I think it's mostly around it's much less about measurement and much more about that clarity that you have about like these people are paying me or not paying me. Why is that the case? Got it. And uh, you know, if anyone talked about Coxie, uh, you you you're building Coxie in in, in open, uh, and you know, a lot lot of lot of founders try to build something in stealth mode because you know they don't they don't want to share. Uh, what what is the process you follow? And uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Buffer and a few other companies where they they do share the metrics. So you know, what metrics? If you're trying to build something in open, what metrics should should one share to the public? Yeah. So I think. So I firstly think, um, you know, that everyone will have their own appetite, right, in terms of what they share and what they don't share. As you said, like many people believe that they should be completely in stealth. Um, I, you know, coming from a you know the WordPress ecosystem where everything is open source, I I wouldn't say I'm, I don't care about competition, but I also believe in the fact that great ideas are a dime a dozen. And that ultimately comes down to execution, right? And the kind of work you put into it. So I think being being at least being more open um, is something that just feels natural to me. I think in terms of what you share, um, probably the only thing that I would say there is like don't share stuff that people can actually use against you, right? Um, like that's just that's just like it's already hard enough to build a business. Um, so like making it harder is just that, that's counterintuitive, right? So I think that's. The, the one part of it. The second part of like what to share. Um, I I actually don't think with Cogsy that I plan on sharing at least granular data about revenue. What is more important for me and what I've, I've tried to share in these kind of early days is you know my kind of personal health data, for example, right, relative to kind of what I'm building because I'm I'm sure I'm building in public for different reasons, right? I'm not I'm not necessarily trying. Like I, I've made good money in my life across two kind of you know, life-changing exits, that's not necessarily the thing that is important here. For me, what is now important is to show that I can build a new business and that I can actually do that in a way that is life profitable because the last thing I want to be is a hypocrite. So like, that's at least if I, you know, if you ask me like, what data should you share? Like that's data I'm sharing, right? But that serves a very specific goal here of why I'm building in, you know, in public. I'm, I'm trying to show traction um, and progress and tell a story, but with a different lens, which is life profitability versus, hey, this is the exponential kind of hockey stick growth of our, you know, of our revenue, basically. Got it. And um, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Yeah. Um, I don't read that many business books um, these days, apparently because I, I don't believe in kind of blueprints and, and how to as much. What I can share is probably the most impactful book that I've read on my business in the last couple of years is a book called Siddhartha by Herman S. And it's a it's a fiction book. Um, it's a it's about a journey. Um, and it just had a, a huge impact on me. It's a it's a short, um, I would say two hour read, kind of probably on average, depending on how fast you read, not a kind of massive book. Um, absolutely fascinating. Like it um, it got me through a dark time in kind of in my business through timing times. Um, and I would highly recommend, you know, anyone picking up a copy of it. 
Got it. And you know, if you could go back in time, uh, probably 2007, when you started uh, working on your business, what is the one thing you would have done uh, differently? Or what, what is one thing you would have focused on? Yeah, I think one of my biggest learnings was um, at this stage in my life, and the, like one of the things I'm taking into my new business is, uh, is an idea called kind of, you know, who, not how. And what that proposes is like all all challenges in, in business, and I think in life as well, but in business, it shouldn't be a question of how do I do X, Y, or Z. It should be a question of who do I need to help me achieve X, Y, or Z. And again, like there's obviously a balance there. You like nobody has unlimited budget to just find like like the very very best people to do all the things. Like we have to do some things, and figure some things out ourselves. But I I I can see in hindsight, at least, that many times in the past. We made we could have made better decisions or more progress if we instead focused on not figuring out how to do things, but instead found like the like the one person that could truly move the needle on that thing for us. So really thinking through asset, like who not how for anyone that's keen on this, um, there's a great again, another short book by author called Dan Sutherland by that name, Who Not How, like have a look. I said like I've explained the core idea there, but that's that's very much something that I wish I had learned earlier in my entrepreneurial journey. Uh, who not all would definitely put that in the show notes. And uh, what's your favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Yeah, um, I think probably two things that I use on a daily basis at this stage. Um, I actually use Front, the email um, kind of, uh, what do you call it? Like just email app, right? Um, and I use that with my assistant, which means like she can essentially handle my whole inbox. Um, so I, 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 like that's truly valuable for me. Like I can't imagine a world without that. And the other one that I've um, really gotten into in the last couple of months is, is Notion. Um, using it as a kind of a both an internal wiki and somewhat of a, a bit of a project management tool for some things, right? And especially the some things as to how they relate to playbooks or kind of SOPs, standard kind of operating procedures. So really finding loads of value of, of having that in a single place, especially with a kind of a, a bigger team, both full-time team members, as well as kind of, you know, fractional, you know, fraction people or freelancers. So that's, as I said, I, I, I'm by no means a, um, a notion master, but definitely kind of, you're starting to use more and more of that. And I can see, that as their product evolves as well, that this will be a key part of how I continue to operate um, or operationalize the things I do both in Cogsy as well as these kind of you know, side projects like the book that I have going on. Interesting. You know, I recently started using Notion and I think I think I'll fall in love with it. Uh, definitely, you know, uh, put on the show notes. Um, uh, Edie, what is the best way people can buy, uh, buy the book Life Probability, the new uh, measure of entrepreneurial success. Yeah, uh, probably the best place to go for most people is is Amazon. Um, it's got a digital kind of ebook version, Kindle version, as well as a paperback. Um, otherwise, uh, totally go to my personal website, ad.me. That's ad.i.me, uh, which has a few other links to other major retailers that also carries the book. Um, otherwise, just tweet me at um, on Twitter um, at ad ad.i um, and say. Hey, I live in some weird corner of the world. How can I find your book? And I'm sure that I can help you figure out like where to, to grab a copy. 
www.lifeselfmastery.com. <laughs> 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 